we live in a spot where it can be almost 60 degrees on one day. And we wake up and it's minus eight. How does that work, huh? Quite the adventure. Quite the opportunity. And yet you guys chose to come today and worship. I hope your hearts, honestly, are, are just warmed. Not because of the friendliness, although I hope there's friendly people here but more because of your meeting with an almighty God. We're in week 13 of our Gospel of John series. We gather together each Sunday to worship. Part of that is praying and singing and praising. And part of that is opening up His amazing Word. Our hope is not only on Sundays, but any time we gather, that we would be able to teach families to know, obey, and enjoy Christ. Isn't that cool? Isn't that something that, that you just sit back and, oh. But it's not just about us, it's about being able to encourage others to also know, obey, and enjoy Christ. The Apostle John has been giving us some snapshots of Jesus. John, we're learning flat out loved Jesus. He penned this gospel near the end of his life, and he was the only apostle at the end of his life that died of natural causes. Everyone else died a martyr's death. But John had an agenda. It was found in chapter 20, verse 31, and the reason he wrote is that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. I've asked again for some of you to be able to memorize this verse. And to be able to go and send me a clip. Well, the Vases, unbelievable. They were so excited to do this. And I get to present that right now. Go ahead. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life. John twenty thirty one. Wow. Yeah. Mason even dressed up for that. That, that was pretty cool. Nice little tie and, and all that. And Again, I only have one more clip for next week. So if any of you have this burning desire to be able to memorize John chapter 20, verse 31, and you just pull your phone out, doesn't have to be professional, doesn't even have to be in front of a Christmas tree. All right, that was done a while back, unless they just are slow in taking down their decorations, I'm not exactly sure. But each week we watch Jesus and we learn from Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, King, and Savior. Jesus came to earth seeking out the lost, the wandering, and offering them hope. 
he met with lost religious leaders who were dead, and he offered them life. He met with lost, really, non-religious neighbors who were thirsty, and he offered them living water. He met with his lost disciples who were aimless, and he offered them an assignment and a purpose. He met with lost, desperate dads whose sons were dying, and he gave them health. He met with a lost, hopeless invalid, afflicted for 38 years. And by his very word, he was healed. Jesus is making claims, claims that are absolutely ludicrous. That is, of course, unless you can back up the claims. Jesus shocked the crowds and angered the religious when he proclaimed that he is the Son of God and that he was the promised Messiah. Last week, we spent some time in John chapter 6, where the Messiah opened the eyes of 20,000 people and fed them, well, with a happy meal. When the crowd saw this, they wanted to make him king. Jesus rejected the path, though, to the throne taken by most earthly kings. He refused the ride, the swell of popular support into Jerusalem. Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite commentators, writes this. He knew his path to be the way of suffering as it had been prophesied for centuries and planned from the beginning by his father. Moreover, he knew people had been prompted by their stomachs rather than their hearts. Jesus chose not to address the crowd immediately. Instead, he retreated further into the wilderness hill country. So if you would turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 6, we're going to open up the Word and focus on verses 14 to 21. And I've asked Gary DeVito to read those for me. You can read along with him on the screen or in your Bibles. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. That evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them, and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified, but he called out to them, Don't be afraid, I am here. Then they were eager to let him in the boat, and immediately they arrived at their destination. You know, there's quite a bit happening actually between verses 14 and 15. And I've, and I've put, um, can, can we go back another slide please? Uh, Can we go forward one more? One more. Okay, I'm sorry. We're missing some slides here, and and I'm not sure why that is. Um, But what what I'd like to say is that there's quite a bit of difference that, that... happens between verses 14 and 15. I'd like to read verse 14 again, if you would, 
chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is a prophet we've been expecting. Oh, right after all of this that is happening. The people look. They've been anticipating this Messiah. And they've been able to focus just a little bit on maybe what their needs are. Once again, I think that we need to look at Matthew and Mark in order to get a fuller picture. Each of these Gospels give us important details of the fifth miracle that actually happened in John. Let's check out some details from Matthew and Mark and focus on John's text and see what God has for us today. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your grace. I thank you, dear God, that you have visited us today. We ask you, Lord, that you would take this very familiar story to so many of us and that you would use it in our lives that we might be able to hear from you today, that we would leave here changed. Father, there's so many churches in our area that are teaching your word today and so many churches that are lifting you up. We pray even today, God, that all over this county and all over this state and all over our world, that you would receive honor and glory as God's people come together, open your word and praise you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, the crowd's statement and Christ's action came at the close of one very busy day. As we noted last week, that Jesus started off just with his disciples, wanted to just connect with them, wanted just to interact with them. And all of a sudden, the crowds found out where Jesus was and the crowds began to grow until this crowd grew to about 20,000, 5,000 men. Jesus, during this day, had been teaching about kingdom truths. He had been healing their sick, and eventually he had just filled their bellies. They wanted an earthly deliverer, one who would meet their physical needs, as well as one who would free them from their Roman oppressors. People want the same thing today. They want to be able to experience life and freedom. They really did. But the crowds didn't get it. Though they could forcibly make Jesus their king, they thought that would be the way to go. You see, the kingdom of heaven is not focused on temporary relief of hunger and pain. But it's about a king quenching a thirst and a hunger in which a relationship with only King Jesus can provide. Jesus was changing their understanding of what the kingdom looked like and what life looks like when Jesus is king and when Jesus is ruling. It's much better and bigger than health and food and power which seem to drive the people to Jesus. Jesus came to preach the good news that the king is here, a king like no other. 
Jesus continued to share with the broken and desperate people that the sovereign king is here and he reigns, although it may not even look like it at times. Jesus came to give hope, to redeem, to restore, to provide both abundant and eternal life. There will be a time when God's kingdom will be totally and fully realized. A time when the lion and the lamb lie down together. But this was not the time, although this is what the people wanted. Jesus knew God's will and responded accordingly. In light of the people's response, Jesus quickly springs into action. We find out that he sends the disciples by boat to the fishing town of Bethsaida. And Matthew and Mark share with us that fact. Apparently, Jesus at this moment was going to meet these guys in Bethsaida. Because then he dispersed the crowd and sends them home. And then we pick up where John focuses. Jesus withdraws and heads off by himself to the hills. Jesus went up to the hills to pray. We find out again in Matthew chapter 14 and Mark chapter 6 that he needed some dad time. You know what's so amazing about Jesus is, oh, we get a really clear picture of who God is. Because he was God in the flesh. But we also get a really clear picture on what it means to be a follower of God. Of someone who was 100% human, who needed to depend wholly upon God for his power and his strength and his wisdom. And that Jesus knew that these crowds were, well, maybe promoting something that sounded quite attractive. It'd be really nice right now if, well, I could just be king. But he knew that wasn't God's plan. He knew that wasn't what he came to this planet to do. And immediately and, and almost instinctively, he sends off the disciples, says, guys, I'll get back to you. You get going. I'm going to get rid of this crowd. And I need to go up to the hills to pray. We're going to come back to that in just a little moment. Now back to John chapter 6, looking at verse 16. John chapter 6, verse 16. I'll read through verse 18. That evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them, and the sea grew very rough. You know, the disciples head off to the western shore as darkness fell, over toward Capernaum, where, where basically most of them were from. Now again, most of the disciples were fishermen, not all of them. So probably six or seven of them have been on that sea all the time, and they did it for a living. They understood the storms that came up. They understood how odd, you know, it would be when they start off on a journey, everything's calm. But by the time they hit the middle 
of the, the sea, the waves could go crazy. What was a little bit odd about this is that it was at night. Because normally at night you don't get these quails. You don't get these storms. But a storm hits and the sea is rough, something that they're so very, very familiar with. But look at verses 19 and 20. They had rowed for three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified. But he called out to them, don't be afraid, I'm here. So get the picture that these disciples again didn't even know where Jesus was They figured they miscommunicated because, again, I'm sure they had doubts at times, but they head over toward Capernaum. And they're rowing because usually the wind isn't blowing in the middle of the night and a storm comes. Now we know this, that Jesus was up on the hills. Jesus was praying And Jesus somehow saw the predicament of the disciples. So he decides to do something so very unique, something none of us will ever have that opportunity to do. But he makes his way toward his disciples in the middle of a raging storm. And he begins to walk out there. The scriptures, and John is kind of casual in his whole report of this. But the scriptures say that they literally see John. In both of the other accounts, in Matthew and in Mark, they say it looked like a ghost. These are grown men, most of them seasoned sailors. They're rowing with everything they have. They're looking out, and they're seeing something like a body moving on the water. Well, all four accounts say they were terrified. Literally, they were scared out of their wits. No one had seen anything like this. No one had experienced anything like this. They had no clue it was even Jesus in the very beginning. As the wind and the rain and the waves were just slapping things all around. They were terrified. And all of a sudden, through all of the fog, they hear a voice, a voice they understood. And Jesus literally says this, take courage. Don't be afraid. I am here. But let me point out that Jesus is saying this while the boat is filling with water. And he's outside walking toward them. Now most of us struggle a little bit with logic or even understanding or even comforting words in the middle of a storm when our boat is filling up with water. So let's not be too hard on the disciples here where all of them, all 12, get up and start doing a happy dance. Oh, Jesus is here. We have no more problems. Everything's cool as the boat continually fills with water. 
You know, when Jesus reached the boat, he calmed them by literally declaring, I am. He followed this with a short command, literally saying, stop fearing. So to us, it sounds really weird. The dude gets up there and says, I am. So stop fearing. But to all these Hebrew boys, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Because in Exodus 13, God met with Moses at that time, speaking from a burning bush, which so many of you understand the story. And he's encouraging Moses to take a trip to Pharaoh and basically talk to Pharaoh and say, hey, you know what? It's time for my people to leave. It's time for the Israelis to be redeemed. And I want you, Moses, to go back to your people and be able to share that with them that I met with you and that you are my appointed leader and that you are going to lead them out of this ugly and ridiculous situation. And Moses looked at God and said, God, who am I? (laughs) Who's going to listen to me? Come on, I can show up all you want. And they're all going to say, well, what, I don't like, what's the big deal? And then God said this, and this is why the Hebrew boys knew it. God says this, tell them that I am sent you. I am. There's great comfort in that word. Because it is focused on the almighty God. The God of all power. The God of all authority. Now again, the boat is filling with water. Do we we get that? Don't be afraid, guys. I know right now you're wondering if you're even going to make it. But don't be afraid because I am here. Oh. You know what? It's words they needed to hear. They didn't fully get it. They didn't fully understand all that. I get it. But it's words they needed to hear. It's words that we needed to hear in our storms. Now, in Matthew 14, we get a whole lot more detail. And I've got that up on the screen for you. Matthew 14, verses 28 through 31. And Matthew records this. He says, then Peter, one of the twelve, called out to Jesus, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come out to you, walking on the water. Without any hesitation, Jesus said, sure, come on out. Jesus then looked at Peter, and Peter went over the side of the boat And again, sometimes we look at his lack of faith. Sometimes we look at his sinking, which is just going to happen. But folks, how many of us in the midst of the storm as our boat is filling up and Jesus shows up and invites us into the storm are willing to get out of the boat? I think Peter's a hero. I think he lacked faith, but I think he's a hero. And I can just see it, man. He jumps out of that boat. And he doesn't sink. That has never happened in his life. And he starts walking. Strutting. 
he starts looking around. This is like so cool. I have never, ever, ever walked on. Water. And you know what? I'm not supposed to be walking on water. And these waves are kind of big. And it's going all over. And you know what? This is crazy. Now, it isn't all in that translation, but it's pretty close. All right? And when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified. Same word, T word, okay? And he began to sink. Yeah. Began to sink. And what does he do? Shout. Save me, Lord. Now, I would do that right now, but I would scare you a little bit. But he literally is shouting for his life, Lord, 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 save me. I don't even know if he went under. I'm kind of thinking he did because that's who Peter was, right? So he's under, he's bobbing, he's up, he's down, he's screaming. Finally he goes, okay, this is not going to work. Lord, save me. Save me. And Jesus immediately reached out, grabbed him. You have so little faith Jesus said, why do you doubt me? Now, i, I got to be honest. There's so much here, but we're going to keep moving forward. Maybe for another time, we're going to look and this amazing miracle. But in verse 21 of chapter 6 of John, we go back to John, and he says this. Then, after Jesus said, hey, don't be afraid, I'm here. Then... They were eager to let him in the boat. Maybe it just dawned on them. Maybe it just hit them. That, whoa, Jesus was the guy that just fed 20,000 people. Jesus is walking on water. Maybe we need him in our boat. And they eagerly, eagerly invited him in. And look what the scriptures tell us. They immediately got to their destination. Now let me just go back a second. Why were the disciples so shocked? Well, their faith was weak. They had been spending time with Jesus. But in any crisis, sometimes we don't see that well, and we respond, well, usually not out of faith. If we go back to Matthew chapter 14, verse 32, and Mark chapter 6, verse 51, we see a little bit more of what happened here. Uh, In Matthew, it says this, when they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped, and the disciples worshipped him. They said, you really are the Son of God, gasping, gasping. And then Mark chapter 6, verse 51, says this. Then he climbed into the boat, and the wind stopped. They were totally amazed. But there's this one little sentence, but they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. That's Jesus is continually teaching. Their hearts 
were too hard to take it in. Now, according to Mark, their hearts were too hard to take it in. But this idiom didn't mean they were unkind or cruel, a little bit like what the English comes across. Rather, what the author is trying to say is the reasoning and their emotions were resistant to development. We would say they were thick-headed. Nevertheless, Jesus remained patient with his disciples, and if he rebuked them at all, it was gentle. A couple things happened right here, right as they got into the boat. Worship flows from seeing God clearly. As soon as they understood all that Jesus was and who Jesus was and the power of Jesus, the scriptures say they began to worship. You see, we have an opportunity to worship every Sunday. And most of the time we come in and we're kind of beat up from the week, aren't we? Kind of discouraged. Because weeks are not always easy. And sometimes we, we just kind of force out some songs or some truths. And, and we don't have a lot of courage or faith. But one of the things we hope to do every gathering is that we hope to take blinders away. We hope for you to clearly see our amazing God because when you do, worship flows. Adoration happens. You don't do it because, well, we, uh, it's time to sing songs. It's God, we're seeing you clearer. And we love you. And we adore you. But one of the things I focused a little bit on this week was I thought about resistant to development. That these disciples, in spite of seeing God, this was the fifth miracle. And they've been hanging out with God, probably with Jesus, probably uh, at least a year, maybe closer to 18 months. So they've been hanging out with the Lord. And they were still resistant to development. I'll tell you, that hit me hard. Because I had asked the question right there. Hey God, I, I, I've known you for a while. I open up your word. I'm, I'm even a pastor. God, am I hearing you well? Am I resistant? Even though your mighty power and authority is so very, very clear. Lord, am I thick-headed? And I think the Lord said really clear, yeah, you kind of are sometimes. Wow, you have a thick-headed pastor. Hmm. You know, Matthew and Mark mentioned that they crossed the lake in their, in their reporting and continued to do kingdom work. John gives us the arriving at the destination immediately part. Seriously? After all this has happened, they started off the day with Jesus just kind of debriefing. Jesus spends the whole day in a miraculous way. 
eventually sends them away, sends the people away. Jesus heads off to the hills. They're out in this boat. This storm hits. They find Jesus walking on water. Peter sinking in the water. They're in the boat at this time. And the one thing John says, holy smokes, is they blink and they're on the shores. They're on the beach. Wow! There is so much here. The disciples could not have imagined this day. No one could have imagined this day. So what does God want us to know about him today? With these few verses, with this story that's so well known, what do we need to know? What do we need to learn about Jesus and from Jesus? I'll tell you the thing that hit me like a sledgehammer is that Jesus needed dad time. I somehow think, okay, Jesus is our example. Jesus is, is well, helps us understand God, but sometimes I forget the human part of Jesus. I just kind of think like, okay, he doesn't really need to do all the same things I need to do, stay connected with God. And I got to be honest with you, this one hit me. He needed to spend time with his dad. He needed to spend time with his dad. You see, God's will for Jesus was a path of suffering and sacrifice, not ease and comfort. He was king but king of a very different kingdom of what Israel was expecting. I am sure the chant of thousands felt good, but because of his relationship, Jesus knew his Father's will and his ways, and I just got to say, how sweet is that? Jesus was so connected. He knew from the very beginning that this was wrong, and the cultural pressures forced Jesus to get his soul replenished. You know what cultural pressures do to us often? Is feed our flesh. And we run from God. It's kind of hard to figure out, would Jesus have been strong enough to just stand there and lecture and make sure the crowd knew what was right? I, I don't know. But he literally ran to his dad. My guess is, I think I'm too strong at times, and I think I'm too wise at times, and I think I'm too brilliant at times, and I stay in the battle, just like you. But I think God says sometimes, why don't you run to me? Let's just spend some time together. Because you really aren't that strong, and you aren't that wise, and you know what? You need my perspective. You see, Jesus knew when it was time to be with God and when it was time to be with people. 
but connection or intimacy with God was critical. Remember in Philippians chapter 3, Paul at the absolute pinnacle of his life, his ministry, he had more power and more knowledge and more authority than anyone could even imagine. And Paul just simply says this, I count everything that I've accomplished so far as manure in light of knowing Jesus. The number one thing in my life is getting to know Jesus, to intimately know Jesus. Now, let me just say this. We never drift into great relationships. We've got some newlyweds in our congregation, and I guarantee it, that after the courting, after the wedding, and even after the honeymoon, however long that honeymoon lasts, if they don't nurture that relationship, that relationship will deteriorate. In fact, one of the greatest questions you can ask those who have been married 30 years or 40 years or 50 years is how did you nurture your relationship? is the same way with God. Sometimes we think we're just going to drift into a great relationship with God. I may just show up every one Sunday, well, at least a couple Sundays a month. I'll get what I need, and oh, God and I, we're tight. We're good. I can almost guarantee you that if that's kind of an attitude you will never grow in intimacy with your God. You see, intentionality is an earmark of growing relationships. You know, spiritual disciplines literally open up our eyes and nurture our relationship with the king. Sometimes we abstain from certain things in order to connect with God better. They're abstinent disciplines, things like the Sabbath or fasting or silence or solitude. Oh, say, Rick, do you think I'm a better person if I fast? Absolutely not. I, I don't think you are. But whether it be from food or whether it be from media or whether it be from relationships that you choose to stop for a time so that you might connect with God better, it's amazing. There's also engagement disciplines like study and meditation slash memory or prayer or worship or service. These are all things, again, that you don't do in order to gain points with God. You do this in order that it would open your eyes, take blinders off, so that you might be able to see the Almighty God a little clearer. And when you do, you're drawn to Him. Let me say it this way. Disciplines prepare you for competition. And the game is called life. None of us live for preparation. You know, we're going to be watching some Olympics real soon. And we're going to get some great stories of how people trained and what kind of foods people gave up in order for them to be one hundredth of a second faster than everyone else in the world. Are you serious? There isn't anyone that works 12 or 14 hours a day in speed skating and says, whoa, that gets me jacked. I can't wait tomorrow. Let's work again. 
You know what they are jacked about? Is getting on that start and having the competition. Oh, that is sweet. No football player, we're in the midst of the playoffs right now, but no football player says, I can't wait to go and lug around 200-pound tires and jiggle heavy ropes until oh, my arms fall off. Nobody. But during game time, <laughs> for them to be able to move, for them to be able to, to stay the course, for them to be able to push monsters out of their way with a flick of their wrist. Oh, that is fun. That is worth it then. And that's how it is with a relationship with Jesus. It's all the disciplines, all the relationship stuff happens so that in life, so when the storm comes, the storm will come. So when it comes, oh, you see that Jesus is there. If you're here last week, I shared with you that I went up north to Nicolay Bible Institute to teach one week on spiritual disciplines. And that's the mighty class right there, all 16 students there. But for two days, I talked about who God is. Because I figured this, they would never want to have a relationship with God unless they understood who God was. For two days, I talked about how cool God was, how big, how gracious, how powerful. Day number three, I said, you want to get to know that God? Yeah. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out some disciplines. And then day four, okay, this is not just about you and you connecting with Jesus. You know what we're going to do on day four? We're going to learn on how to help others get to know Jesus and give that away. Oh, folks. I just want to say thank you. I know you prayed. I know that God did something very special this last week. I know that kids responded in a certain way. I know again that, that they are jacked about Jesus. And 16 kids are loving the Lord a little more. Now someone said, did you have a good week? Well, I guess I'll find out in about a year if those kids are still walking with God. And if I had a little piece of that, yeah, that is a good week. You see, a rich relationship with God enables you to serve and to give. In fact, what happens as you spend time with God, God literally begins to chip away all the ugly things in your life. And that's what's so cool is that in, in Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. So all of us who have had that veil removed, or all of us who see God clearly, we can reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. This, again, is God's purpose. 
is that I spend time with him every day and he chips away like I'm a hunk of marble. All the things that point to Rick and don't reflect God very well. So if Rick is in charge, all you see is selfishness and anger. But as I spend time with God and I get to know God. He chips away so that every day or every week that I spend time with Him or every year that I spend time with Him, more people, well, they see Jesus instead of Rick. I never become Jesus, but what happens is, and this is why I encouraged our kids, some of them were 17 years old. I said, think if you walk with God for the next year, do you know how much more Jesus you're going to look like? Uh Hey, how about 10 years? 10 years, you walk with God every single day. Do you know how much more? Hey, and I pumped it out. And I eventually got to 50 or 60 years. Some of you folks sitting right here have walked with God literally daily. For tens of years. I want you hanging out with our younger people. With our younger couples. Because I want you to be able to model for them how you do life. So the encouragement isn't, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus right now and let him chip away. It's how about if we spend time with God, let him chip away today. And in 10 or 20 or 40 years, we start having an army of people that just wherever they go, I say they spill Jesus. It's kind of like a cup. The more you have of Jesus, the more you reflect Jesus, okay? When people bump into you, and a little bit rude, all that happens is Jesus kind of spills out. But if you haven't been spending time with Jesus and someone bumps into you, you perhaps give them a gesture that is very ungodly. Or say something in your mouth that probably shouldn't come out. Because that's what we do. It's all about us. Wow. Very quickly, just a few other things. Jesus is present in the storms. Not only did Jesus spend time with his dad, but Jesus is present in the storms. Jesus noticed when we go through storms in our struggle, and Jesus, well, his presence is enough. When he comes and says, I am is here, whoa, do a happy dance. Because we have the storms, and we need Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus is all-powerful. He has authority over all. He can walk on water. He can calm storms. He just even controls time and travel. It's not shocking. He is worthy to put our faith in. And lastly, and this is cool, Jesus brings adventure to life. Oh, my word. As you look back, enjoy the ride. You may not like where he takes you. You may not like all the different people that you get to connect with. But as you look back, and that's what Sharon and I have been doing, 
just even recently is, God, you are so faithful. God, it hasn't always been an easy journey, but you are faithful. My question to you is, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus personally? Have you come to a place where you've received him as your Savior? And if you do know Jesus, are you spending time with Jesus? We'd love to be able to help you on that journey. We've got tools out in our lobby. We'd love to have you connect with different people to encourage you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much, God, that, that you chose to reveal yourself to a group of guys, guys that are so much like us. We spend time with you. We treat you casually. You do amazing work. And sometimes we are thick-headed. God, would you give us grace? Would you give us understanding? Would you give us the ability, Father, to see you more clearly? God, we know we need a relationship with you. We cannot do life without you. Father, give us the courage to make time for the important and don't let our lives be driven by the urgent. We pray this in your name, amen.